Hello, welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about Stellaris. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks that don't want to just be doing on this podcast? Well, on this podcast, we like to talk about games. And one of the games that we've been playing a lot in the quarantine has been Stellaris. It is a paradox, real-time Auschwitz ending... Or not, Auschwitz. Uh, <laughs> fuck. Oh my god. Klauschwitz. Klauschwitz. Jesus Christ. <laughs> the Klauschwitz engine 4X game. Just roll, roll through it. Roll through it, <laughs> Hearts of Iron might use uh, might use that engine, but uh, yeah. Oh, God. Actually, I've, I have played a lot of Hearts of Iron. I have never played the Nazis, though the Nazis are the most played. This is something that they talk about sometimes in completely unrelated, but in like paradox, like whatever. They'll talk about how the most played like nation for Hearts of Iron, no matter what, is always the Nazis. And I'm like, why don't people want to play the U.S.? The U.S. is fucking awesome, but whatever. I, anyway. So, um, so uh, I'm, I'm curious. We can do other Paradox stuff. It's related enough. But uh, I wonder if that's because – I know in Hearts of Iron 3, the tutorial was like, you know, they didn't say it outright, but it was pretty clear you were Hitler. I wonder if – like, because like I think the tutorial does influence that, right? Like I think a lot of people play CK2 in Ireland because the tutorials in Ireland. Oh, 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 that would make a certain amount of sense. Yeah, I also just think that, like, the fantasy of winning the war as the Nazis, like, from a military history perspective, not, like, a moral perspective, yeah, yeah. right, is, like, you know, they they got off to this explosive start, and, oh, if only we don't, if they don't invade the Soviet Union. If only they, you know, don't do the Battle of Britain or whatever else. You know what I mean? Like, if only they make this decision or that decision or whatever. Um, like, maybe they they come out on top. I I guess. Like I said, I've never played the Nazis. Uh, yeah. I've played basically all of the Allies, actually. Um, yeah. I, oh, and I played Japan, which sucked. Japan is very hard. I have to imagine part of the appeal of playing a of playing the game is maybe to like do something different than history, right? Like, like I can see that being fun, like for a little while to like just like repeat history. But I feel like most of it is like, what if you know, like Australia became a world superpower or whatever, right? And like the the oh, most yeah. obvious version of that is like you said, what if what if the uh, the Axis won, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the, and you know there there are two kind of ways that you can play uh, Hearts of Iron with which has like historical focus on where countries generally speaking make decisions that they made in history, um, and you can play historical focus off, which means like maybe the United States goes communist, <laughs> <laughs> and so that kind of like alternate history stuff is also very fun. Yeah, um, but anyway, there is, is no alternate Stellar. history. In Stellaris, because there's, yeah, no, there's no alternate <laughs> history in Stellaris. Um, we've been playing a bunch of multiplayer, um, one single game, but a couple of different sessions of it. We've gotten pretty deep into the game, not quite late game. We haven't triggered an end game crisis yet, uh, but we're basically on on the doorstep of um, of one. Uh, we've been trying out the new Federation systems uh, and wallowing in just all of the content that has come from the DLC. When Stellaris first came out, we did a big episode on it where we were actually a little bit mean to the title. Um, and I think, you know, with Stellaris when it launched was a lot less fun than it is now uh, because it has really, and this is sort of my thesis, it has really hyper-focused into the one single thing that makes the game fun, which is resource efficiency right the thing that makes stellaris feel good is numbers 
in like the top left corner of your screen screen and keeping those numbers good and healthy and like do you know what i mean stonk um, go up yeah exactly it is like that kind of a feeling right like whereas in other strategy games you know uh like total war warhammer right like that's a that's a game that i play in a militaristic sort of way it's a lot less about the economy the economy is kind of there to support my like cool armies and i fight these battles and i do clever things with like my army compositions and leveling up my guys and i have fucking you know orion like go solo whatever like carl franz or whatever and they i watch their 1v1 duel or, or whatever that kind of like looks like right like that's the appeal of that kind of uh of that 4x experience and then there are other sorts of right like the alternate history stuff that comes from uh hearts of iron or you know the the long-term lineage kind of like rping your your ruler in ck2 but in stellaris i just think it is so simple all it all all it is is it's just like make these numbers go up make them go up that's all you gotta do um especially in the mid to late game right i, I think yeah. just to point it out that something that stellaris does better than the other paradox games um just because of the nature of the game is the explore uh function uh, because, yeah. Just because, like, the other games, the maps are mostly known, right? Like, you're always playing in medieval Europe. Even when you're playing with, like, one of these, uh, you know, like, randomized worlds, it's still, like, the same continents, the same shape, right? Um, uh, and the world's the same shape. And Stellaris is the only one with where it's random every time and it's a little bit different every time. And, like, the first phase of the game is exploring. Um, like your and it's, a, and it's a very game. long phase of the game. Like yeah. even in like Europa Universalis, right? Like my favorite thing to do in Europa Universalis is to play Spain and go really hard on exploration so that you can claim just like as much of the new world as possible or whatever. But that's like a mid-game thing, right? In the early game, you're doing your stuff, you're going whatever, and then you're trying to tech into explorers so that you can start, you know, trying to colonize north and south america and the caribbean and stuff like that right um whereas in stellaris the very early game is all exploration it is just moving around and the and you know moving through like the hyper lanes and stuff like that like honestly one of the biggest and most impactful changes that has been made since our first stellaris episode is that you only have one map movement in the beginning of the game it is hyper lanes that was not a not a default but it was one of three versions of map movement in the in the early version of stellaris you had these like warp gate things where you go to the gate and you can kind of warp to any system in a radius you had hyper lanes and then you had a third one that i don't actually really remember i think i think it was subspace travel like like the same subspace travel that you had oh right right right. like you could just hit anywhere in the galaxy but it would take a longer time if you were farther away kind of thing um and so, and you had like you had to have like sensor range or whatever. Now, because systems are kind of these nodes on a network, um, something I find myself doing very commonly, right, is I'll explore up to like a single node, and I'm like, this is going to be the gateway to my empire, right? Like, I am going to stop my, you know, like stop claiming territory here for now and maybe like maybe i can go into sort of like the next big wider chunk that has a bunch of other sort of nodes in it but i always like that sort of i want to reduce the ingress points on my empire to as few as possible in that multiplayer game where i have a large amount of territory i have a grand total of three ingress points to the entirety of my empire right dozens of systems um because you know part of part of what i was focused on was um consolidating those entry points to my territory under 
like a single like under a single node and then i can build a big giant bastion star base with a bunch of defense platforms or whatever so that like hypothetically if anybody ever goes to war with me i can kind of like stop them there but like that's just kind of a you know like i, I don't I, that's not necessarily a thing that somebody should do but it's the kind of thing that because the hyperlane system exists it makes that early game exploration period uh just like really fun and engaging i i, I find uh yeah no i i, I absolutely agree um it's just kind of it's like it's also you get like like you don't get like the same kind of like uh events that you do in the other games right like things that just kind of happen they're mostly just based around the um uh the like the arc or not the archaeological finds but the anomaly finds um they serve kind of the same purpose um as well as interactions with other places, but you get many less like, you know, kind of like, oh, you know, like the drunkard rode into the tavern and slapped you. Do you execute him or do you, you know, laugh it off type of stuff you get? Yeah, in no, and, and you always have to sort of earn that stuff, which I think is like a subtle difference, but it means a lot. Right. Like something that I do when I'm when I'm playing is I never investigate anomalies when I like when when they pop up. Right. Because my core drive in that early game is to explore as much as explore and claim as much territory as possible. Right. Uh, because you can, either, like you can find yourself boxed in if you don't go, you know, like if you're going to sit a scientist researching a routine anomaly for a hundred days, well, that's a hundred days that they're not surveying the next system. Right. Um, and I also sort of find this, like I get to the, I always get to this point where I have surveyed basically everything and my borders are preset and now I have these science shifts. And it's like, what do I do with them? Well, once I started leaving the anomalies behind now, it's just, oh, we'll do this one, that one, this one, that one, that kind of a thing. Yeah, no, it, that makes sense. I usually research a couple, especially if they're like lower level ones early, cause it's good to, mm -hmm. it like gives experience to your, uh, to, to your science ships, which, which, uh, I think helps. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, a higher level scientists survey faster. So, yeah. And, uh, also a little bit of delay is, is fine. I think too, cause if you're going for the earlier, um, uh, exploration traditions, you get faster surveying speed. So I think that works out too, but, um, Anyway, uh, I think maybe early on, I, I do want to touch a little bit on just kind of like the actual multiplayer aspect because, uh, sure. you know, um, uh, we whenever we play these games, we never we never go at each other's throats. Uh, like we, we never play it competitively, which it's, it's like, I guess I get that more in CK2 just because like, you know, it's that's just kind of like the way the, the like it, being at each other's throat in CK2 would be kind of aggravating. But uh, it's it's interesting to me that like there's like never any shots fired in uh in 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 Stellaris or at least Tasmanian. The funny, yeah, the funny thing is, okay, so in the history of our game, right? So Mangu and I both started as mega corporations, but I was just surrounded by other mega corporations, so I very quickly changed my government to a normal democracy um, because mega corps can't establish branch offices on other mega corps. Um, and, uh, and then Josh and Nick were both playing fairly conventional Lithoid empires. Lithoid being the rock people, which is like the new species pack that just came out. Um, X was playing a hive mind and we all got in this federation together that you started, which was called the trade federation. And the benefit of a trade federation, uh, like the core benefit is that it increases your trade value by a percentage. And now listen, I love that, right? My, I'm a fanatic pacifist xenophile so i have a bunch of extra bonuses to trade i am uh working hard to maximize my trade as much as possible i had like 3k trade by the time that we stopped our most recent session or whatever but x as a hive mind 
cannot engage in trade. Therefore, his inclusion in the Federation really doesn't make any sense. He is not getting a benefit out of that Federation basically at all. Uh, just a small correction. It was a trade Federation type Federation, but the uh, name of the Federation was the Business League of Profit. Uh, That's true. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. There are a couple different types of federation. There's like a hegemony where one person, the strongest person is in charge and everybody else is kind of their bitch. Um, there is like a galactic union, which is like a diplomatic focus one. It increases your diplomatic weight in the galactic community. You're all kind of equals. And then there's a, a research compact or something, I think. Um, the research compact obviously giving you bonus to like research or whatever. But yeah, so like from a multiplayer setting, it probably actually would have made some sense for like the group of us to gang up on X, especially because he kind of like took off in the, in the mid game. Yeah. Um, which he happens being pretty aggressively. Yeah. One of the things that makes hive mind nice is, um, so they don't have access to trade, which is like a value source for kind of conventional pops and species. Um, but hive minds never have to worry about happiness. Um, and they never have to worry about, uh, kind of like specialist stratum of, of jobs and of citizens and stuff like that. Um, and they never have to worry about consumer goods. So they kind of have a, a streamlined sort of like resource pipeline. Whereas like a conventional species, the resource pipeline is, you know, um, you have food that goes to your pops and your pops are generating energy and minerals and use those minerals to make alloys and to make consumer goods and you need a certain amount of consumer goods upkeep for your pops or whatever right like because they don't have that consumer goods outlet they kind of just get to focus in on the stuff that they're making and it, it sort of allows them uh to succeed better i guess i would say yeah um what's and what what are what's actually the drawbacks of the hive mind i'm not i'm not super like i know you don't get the bonuses that the other ethics give you because you need to pick the gestalt consciousness ethic um yeah so you don't get you don't get um access to like any of the other sorts of ethics like uh like materialist gives you a bonus to research uh or you know spiritualist gives you a bonus to unity or anything you have to take that gestalt ethic and you also don't get factions um one of the things that a conventional empire can do is appease their factions in order to get more influence so a conventional empire is going to be earning more influence than um a hive mind would that makes sense uh, uh, which is honestly a big thing because influence is one of the hardest of all the resources in the game. You can really affect the rate at which one of the things that's interesting about Solaris is it doesn't really care that much about absolute values. It cares more about rates, right? It It is less a game about having a um, like having like enough credits to afford something as much as it is a game about maximizing your credits intake as much as possible if that makes sense you want to like get as many credits per turn in a way um which i which other games definitely do but solaris really has like an emphasis kind of um on it and um and so uh one of the things that you really can't affect all that much compared to the other ones, right? Like, if I want more credits, I can always build another generator district. I can always modify my trade policy to generate credits from trade. I can always, you know, build buildings that are providing jobs that generate credits. I can prioritize those jobs so that the credits jobs are the ones that I'm assigning my pops to take or whatever. You can do a lot in order to make your credits income better. You really can't do all that much with faction or with influence. You can appease your factions. You can research a couple of texts. 
you know, at the at the very, very, very end game, you can use an edict to increase your influence, and that's really about it. Um, so it is kind of the ultimate sort of choke point resource-wise in a lot of ways uh, for a lot of empires. And it's it's used for a lot of things too, right? It's used to what you can expand to. It's you need to pay some to like get into research agreements. Yeah. Um, you need you, to you pay a certain amount of influence every turn when you're in agreements with people, which I think is actually really useful because it means that like honestly, my default stance with diplomatic agreements is no, because like even a quarter of a point of influence per turn or like per month is just like that insanely useful to me. Um, so if I'm going to enter a non-aggression pact, I really want that non-aggression pact. If I'm going to enter a research agreement, I'm really like interested in entering that research agreement. Uh, but because like. If I want to build mega structures, if I want to build, you know, star bases and claim more territory, if I want to make claims on enemy empires for wars I want to start, all of that stuff costs influence. And that's, you know, that's really expensive. Yeah. Um, in some ways, I think that, that can be a little bit frustrating, especially because, like, it's not super obvious that that that, that it, is, it is the most throttled resource. There's no obvious way to get more of it, right? Like, um, and so, like... I think one of kind of the overarching flaws that you can assign to the Paradox games in general is that they are very dense um, and, like, fairly impenetrable, uh, especially yeah. if you're used to another game, right? Like, um, I've got a friend that I am teach trying to teach actually Stellaris to, and, uh, like, the, the, my overarching message to her is basically, you know, all right, just take in these things, ignore most of this. It'll take care of itself for the most part, and you can learn that when you've mastered the basics and like, that's basically how all of these, these games go, right? Like you can, no, absolutely. I, that was the exact same experience I had, uh, when I was sort of showing Rachel the other night and like Rachel and I have played dozens of hours of Europa Universalis, which is more complex than Stellaris together. Right. But there's still just so much that you're kind of like hit with right off the bat and you're getting all these notifications and it's like, Oh, uh, you know, like, and it's just there, there's there's a lot going on, and so it's very easy to get lost. I would say. Yeah, and like I think I think part of that too is like the UX isn't necessarily the greatest, right? Like, mm -hmm. explain to some like you know, explaining to someone how to build a second science ship is like, oh, okay, so you have to find your star base. The easiest way to do that is in your outliner, right? And your star base is in your system. If you want to go look at it, you can, but you probably don't want to. You click on that, and then. When you're looking at your star base on the bottom, there are three tabs, and you want to click the one that says shipyard. Yeah. And then you want to click on you want to click your science ship. And then once it's built, you can't actually use it until you click on the science ship and assign it a scientist. And you probably all your scientists are probably assigned, so you have to go hit the recruit button. And then you have to choose one of the recruits, right? Like it's it's like so many steps to just like figure that out. And once you know it, it's not so bad, right? But like like um uh like like you know, my 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 friend that I was showing this to, I you know, I, I showed her how to do that once, and then, like, later she's, like, so, like, she just couldn't find the button again, right? Like, she, she just, you know, like, oh, oh, okay, there's that third tab at the bottom. You know, it's just, like, there's there's so much in the interface. and Yeah, I mean, and can you imagine, like, there's a little menu thing on the left side, and it's each one is assigned to the, the, the function keys, right? F1, F2, F3, or whatever. But there are so many little menus in that that they run out of function keys. Yeah. So it's like in the menu thing on the side, there are 15 different things you can click on and each one of those has its own tabs. Where do I find my relics? Well, you go to the traditions tab 
of the or you go to the traditions and relics part of the menus and then you go to the bottom tab and you swap to the relics screen you know it's like jesus fucking christ i think that was particularly egregious too because it's not like relics and traditions really have anything to do with each other yeah you know it's just like they found a spot for it and it's like yeah. and you know part of this is like bloat over time right like the game did not start with archaeology uh the game did not start with right like the expansion planner or sectors or all of these other sort of like like the the game very obviously got more complicated as they added more systems with um expansions and they kind of refined it uh paradox always sorts of sorts of like they kind of play to advanced players in a way that um you know like a game like league of legends kind of like plays to advanced players do you know what i mean um where they are they're sort of feeding their dedicated player base and if you are a dedicated player you understand all of these things implicitly and you can handle a new layer of complexity with federations or a new layer of complexity with the galactic community right off the um off of a new expansion but if you're somebody who's walking into the game fresh for like the very first time not only do you have to learn that base game experience you have to learn all of the different interlocking pieces that got added to expansions like before that Um, yeah and like if like if you happen to be playing like well, you know there are some some of these pieces don't like you know like the, the edges don't like match up with each other quite quite as well right like and like sometimes that's like a little bit rough right like imagine like starting as like a authority it's like well wh- why don't i care about this resource oh everybody else says you're just special right it's like oh I, okay like um but like to, to your point though right like the, i don't think the game started with the expansion planner but the expansion planner is a quality of life thing that makes things easier right oh but, absolutely <laughs> <laughs> um but like it's also one of those things where it's like if you don't know what you're looking at it's you know um man i mean it, even just the process of creating an empire you know like something that's nice about civilization or whatever you boot up a game of civilization and you just like look through these world leaders or whatever and like okay maybe in civ 6 there's a couple of small examples where you can play either, you know, I don't even remember. In five, you can play. Or the other Greek guy. And they both have a couple of basic things that are just Greek and then a couple of specific things that are specific to their, like, leadership traits or whatever, right? Right. But for the most part, right, if you play Harold Hadrada, right, that is go- that is a, a package deal for your whole run that is that – is, uh, built for you to sort of just like go you start the game right i play teddy roosevelt and i go um when it comes to stellaris and you're like building an empire you got to think you got to what are all these ethics do what are the civics what are the traits on my species when it says it increases my habitability by 20 percent, what does that mean right what are pop consumer goods what are pops right like the all of those questions are are basically unanswered um so and you can, like, but the saving grace is you can ignore most of it for most of the game until you want to really dig into it. But, like, to that point, right, like, I think that starting a game with, like, a pre, pre-constructed race is kind of a mistake just because, like, you know, there's so much that will be affecting you that you just, like, won't be aware of. You'll be like, oh. Um, like, it, and I think I think mostly the big thing there is the ethics stuff because, like, certain ethics, like, really change the way the game plays, right? Like, um imagine starting out and you just like random into like a super xenophobic uh like th- this actually happened to my friend she, she played for the first time without me and she like picked a race and like she was like oh, like i was like oh what what eth-? like she was like i couldn't do diplomacy with anybody it said i was xenophobic i was like oh you just happened to pick the one that like locked out a big part of the game right like yeah. that's 
that's like you know the, the first the first thing I did with with her was just like walk her through the Empire Crit and be like picks like you know these are the things that matter these are the things that don't you know like think about how you want to play it don't pick just all don't pick machine intelligence right like just you know understand what's going to happen here and uh, try and try and go with it C- kind of on on that note actually with the, with regards to the ethics. I think I like I think I've always gotten like one like you know one extreme ethic and one less extreme ethic. Have you ever done like three three less extreme ethics? Uh I did do a playthrough of three less extreme ethics. I mostly just found it not fun. Um but like maybe that was unique to the I only did it I only, I've only ever done it once. I feel like the game is built for you to do one fanatic ethic, yeah. one medium sort of ethic. Um like you want to go fanatic militarist and xenophobic or whatever. Um, or you want to go, like, fanatic militarist and, like, materialist. Um, but I also feel like civics a lot of the times really change the way that I play. Like, right now, one of the games that I'm um, I'm in in Stellaris, I'm playing a fanatic mili- – no, I'm sorry. Fanatic materialist regular m- militarist uh, empire. But one of the civics I have replaces entertainers with duelists. And duelists do take alloys instead of consumer goods – and give you a little bit of naval capacity, and they still give you the amenities that an entertainer would, but, you know, it's just, like, a little bit, like, different. But that really changes my approach to the game, right? Because all of a sudden, I am thinking a lot more about creating alloys. Um, And you need, and, and like, amenities are something that you need a lot of uh, in sort of, like, the mid-game or whatever. So I find myself with, like, more naval capacity than, like, I normally kind of, like, would otherwise have. And so that's, like, a very small, I think it's a civic, right? Um, It's a very small decision that I made that really dramatically kind of shaped the trajectory of that game. Because all of a sudden, you know, in the early game, I'm not locked at that 20, you know, naval capacity. I'm sitting on, like, 40 and I can basically take on anybody in the galaxy because they're all locked down. Um, so that kind of, you know, like that kind of a thing can really matter. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so que- uh, question for you though, just kind of like on, on, in the, uh, in that vein of, of military stuff, um, in, in the game that we were playing with it, with our group, we're all, we're both playing pacifists of some flavor. You're a fanatic pacifist. I'm a regular pacifist. I'm very much like, ah, oh, why don't we just trade our problems away? Don't oh, bother me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, part of, part of the, I think kind of the thing that, that's always kind of like scared me about playing anything militarist is like the shipbuilder. I've just like always left it on like auto best. Have you screwed around with the shipbuilder? Is it worth like doing little tweaks there? Uh, I have, I have, I went very deep into this shipbuilder maybe like a year or two ago. Um, I like watched a bunch of video. There's like a ton of, there's like this little cottage industry of YouTube videos that are like, let me explain the incredibly complex paradox, like military combat systems to you or whatever. Um, and I got really deep into it and, uh, I was very good at the shipbuilder for a while. Like, so for instance, um, something like you might not know, or like people might not realize about the shipbuilder is that like the different like lasers or, you know, uh, like flak cannons or whatever, like the armaments that you can put on certain things. Um, they'd like, they're, it's kind of a little bit of a rock, paper, scissors thing, right? If your enemy has a lot of armor, it's good to go, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, lasers or something. If your enemy has a lot of shields, it's bad to go lasers. Lasers are bad against shield, but it's good to go, you know, torpedoes. Cause torpedoes just bypass shields or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Um, 
and I got really deep into it, and I was building all of these custom ships. Every time I built, like, every, every time I researched a new, like, military tech, I immediately went to the shipbuilder and, like, rearranged everything, and I maximized my power up at all this other sorts of stuff, right? Um, and that was really fun and really engaging, and then they did a big, giant, like, system-wide rebalance, um... And all of that knowledge is like completely unloaded. <laughs> just like fuck. <laughs> yeah, and well, and it's like, and you know, honestly, like, I don't even like hold it against paradox, right? Because right. they basically recognized an not not quite an exploit, because obviously, like, it was sort of like, you know, the the systems were all working intentionally, but people like min maxed stuff or whatever. And I never really super engaged with that. Like, so for instance, something that people do, like people in our game do this, they only build corvettes and battleships because corvettes can be so fast and you can bump their evasion so high that they're basically untouchable. And so even if they do no damage, it doesn't matter. Um, and battleships can engage from like the farthest range and just like one shot destroyers and cruisers or whatever else. Um, and so they just build these giant fleets of battleships and corvettes. And I agree, you know, with the math or whatever. Like I recognize that that is the optimal way to to play the game, but it is like the less fun way for me to play the game than to make a big giant armada with a couple of battleships, a little more cruisers, a little more than that destroyers, a little more than that corvettes. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so I always end up with these fleets that, like, yes, if I allocated my naval capacity to just battleships and corvettes that were purely designed in this way or whatever, um, I would probably – it would be, like, a, be more efficient use of that naval capacity. But it's kind of like an RP choice that I make to not do that. Yeah, no, no, that, 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 makes, that makes perfect sense. I also, like, I feel that, like, because, because the auto builder is there – and because, like, it is so dense, it's very easy to just kind of be like, eh, I'm not actually going to make a lot of real choices here. Like, the fact that, like, say, Civilization, like, you know, you have to, like, produce every unit and kind of consciously think about it, I think, like, lets you basically customize your force a little bit more in, in, in that kind of way, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to go heavily on artillery because I have to build each one. Whereas, like, kind also, of... Yeah, one of the other things is that the uh, the auto builder used to suck, but they improved it a lot. So it, it is now basically good, whereas before it was really bad. Yeah. Um, it's, it's also one of those things where it's, like, hard to figure out, like, because you've got so many different enemies, right? Like, I think, theoretically, you could go scout out your enemy, like, oh, they've got a lot of, like, hull tech, so I should focus on anti-hull weapon type stuff. Um, but, like, that also feels kind of like, well, if I do that, then... Uh, you know, if the neighbors on my other side come and get like it, it, it feels kind of hard to justify specializing an army when you probably like want a generalist one at the very to least. Be, well, so the interesting thing there is to be honest, it just kind of like depends on what I'm like focusing on in any individual run because it is fun. What one of the things that I sort of surprised myself with coming back to Solaris for Federations is how much I was willing to micro uh resettlements. Um, Something that I had done about a year ago, like the last, whatever the last time I played Stellaris was, is I was playing like a militaristic empire and I was really frustrated by all the resettling. So anytime a planet would hit max population, I would shut off pop growth on it, right? Um, something that I've been doing a lot in our multiplayer game, though, is I am shuttling people, right? Like I want pop growth on as many places as possible so that I can always be shuttling people around right and taking advantage of all of the pops that are just like constantly spawning constantly spawning or, or whatever right um i have a new colony i have a new habitat i have a new whatever and um 
I'm going to take all of the people that get built or get grown or get whatever on the core planets and send them out to the to the fringes, to the new colonies that I'm building. Um, I have a lot more tolerance for that micro this game and a lot less tolerance for the shipbuilder. And I think it is the same thing. It's just like... Because I'm playing a fanatic pacifist empire, I don't, why the fuck would I matter? Like, who yeah. cares? I'm just going to build auto best ships and let it be what it is. Um, and I'm going to spend my time microwing that stuff. When I'm playing a military run where I'm doing a lot of claiming and conquering and warring all the time, it, it, it is, like, fun, right, to look at, you know, to build a listening post on your border, look at the ships that they have at, you know, whatever – and say, ooh, they have high armor tech but low shield tech. So I'm going to go really hard on lasers, right? I'm going to build a whole fleet that is just, like, teched out to be, like, the, you know, fucking the key to the lock of this empire and i'm just gonna like blitz through them because all of their tech is armor bullshit and my lasers are gonna melt right through that or whatever the case may be um and that's like that's satisfying but it's also very micro intensive right and so i think part of it is just that like i'm willing to do micro in certain circumstances and unwilling to do it in others and it just sort of like depends on the playthrough or the run that i'm like that i'm doing one of the things that's interesting is like a military empire military empires are really hard to play i find um, because you basically need to c- declare war immediately or else you lose. Um, something that, like, as a fanatic pacifist or whatever, I have a lot of space to build, you know, like, bureaucracy to, like, increase my administrative cap. I have a lot of uh, my, like, my pops are contributing. Le- like, I-, I have to feed them less food, less consumer goods and stuff like that. I don't really have a big use for alloys, so I don't have a giant, like, need for alloy production. If you're playing a military empire, you kind of can't make too many. You have to make a lot of alloys because you need to build starships. You have to be researching a lot because, you know, you have to be kind of on the cutting edge of your starship research. Um, And a lot of the times that means that you might, like, drop and say, I'm going to take unhappiness here or crime there because I'm just looking to conquer and I need to spend all of my influence on conquering. I can't spend my influence on, you know, whatever else. Um, And I generally speaking find that, like, if you're playing a militaristic run, you need to attack the first empire you find, like, the first empire that you possibly can, and take over as much of their shit as you possibly can, as early as you can, to kind of, like, instantly double your starting power, if that makes sense. Um, If you can just, like, gobble up. It's kind of like if you do a really early war on civilization and you capture somebody else's capital or whatever. That's, like, a huge boost in the early game of civilization because, like, advanced cities are pretty rare at that moment in in uh, in the game's timeline. It's the same sort of thing, I feel like, with Stellaris. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, was there a, was there a, a thing I wanted to follow up on this one? Yeah, uh, the, the other part of this too is that like, um, in terms of like, like how much do you care about like victory points and like actually quote unquote winning the game? Uh, very little. Okay. Uh, I generally find that I am in the first place. The, the, Solaris is an easy game in the sense that it's pretty easy to get yourself in first place and and like quote unquote win. Um, but I feel like it's a game that has a lot of small scale stakes, I guess, if I uh, like. Yeah, that makes that sense. Um, that, that like keep it engaging. Very rarely do I look at a game of Solaris and be like, oh, my God, I'm about to fucking like lose. Um, but I do look at a game of Solaris and be like, oh, my fucking God, I'm going to lose this war. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, like, but that's obviously a little bit different for the uh, for the multiplayer aspect. Did you care at all when we were playing our game? Uh, I probably would care if like we were competitive about it, right? Like, that's fair. but because we kind of had a cooperative spirit and we're all sort of trying to do our own thing and not really like fuck on one another. Uh, I think it's pretty amicable. I don't mind that X is in first place or that Josh. Josh and I are about the same. Um, Nick is kind of up there with us. I feel like you got a little screwed in that. Yeah, and in like, that game because you just couldn't expand. A part of that too is like also like not fully embr- like understanding the systems, but that's fine by me, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, I I was thinking about like what I could do to like uh to 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 shift things up, but like one of the things that kind of like. Um, like looking at those score things is like, I just didn't find any relics. Right. So that's like a large amount of victory points. that are just like shut off to me. Oh, right. Yeah, and yeah. Sure. And then that feels like, that's like one thing, like, you know, like a lot of those kind of like more luck based things just seem kind of uh, a little bit less fun. If that makes sense. Like if you, yeah, care I about mean, that. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I actually feel like paradox themselves know that it doesn't matter. Um, like victory points people don't really like play towards the victory points that much uh compared to a game of civilization where right. i think people play to the victory from turn one right right right, um, right. and uh like that's kind of it i mean it's, it also actually reminds me a little bit of like total war in a certain sense uh because total war also has like very pie in the sky victory conditions that most people don't meet right like even you know, like me as a hardcore player of Total War Warhammer 2, right? Like Total War Warhammer 2 is my most played game at 685 hours, right? Um, I have achievements in that game. Achievements that like, okay, so the Empire is the most famous, like most played, famously the most played game or faction ever since the game has been out, Warhammer 1 and 2, the number one faction that players play is the Empire, right? I very recently completed an Empire campaign in January after the most recent DLC launched, and I got the Imperials of Excellence achievement, which is playing as the Empire, win a single-player campaign. 2.3% of players have this achievement. So if, of all the Total War players, right, of all the Total War players that are, like, out there, who are most commonly playing the Empire, if only 2.3% of them are actually completing a single-player campaign as the Empire, it does sort of suggest that people are playing more towards kind of, like, mid-game immediate stakes rather than, like, long-game victory conditions. Yeah, no, that that, that makes sense. Um, I think it's a little bit strange because, like, Stellaris is the only one of the Paradox games that even kind of has that, right? Like... There's no victory condition. Like, I guess there are some points in CK2, but, like, people care about less about those than anything, right? Like, especially because, uh-huh. like, it's just so var- variable, right? Like, you would just start as, like, the King of Britain and, like, be most of the, you know, like, be on top. Um, or you could, you know, start as a count and try and build joy up, right? And, like, that game is much more about role-playing. But Stellaris um, is very, like, very much kind of, I think, has, like, this normal kind of game uh, imposed, but, like, as part of its DNA that, like, just, like, it's weird because it's, like, watching Paradox that doesn't do this type of game make, make a, like, a normal 4X game, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Well, and so, I actually think that it speaks a little bit to how 4X games tend to be played in practice, in a way, uh, because I do think people care a lot more about immediate stakes and sort of goals than long-term ones, 
and I think in a, in a certain sense, a lot of 4X games are built around those medium goals sort of popping up all, all of the time to, like, give you, like, an immediate focus, right? Like, this is the thing that you are focused on right now. For a while, it was me chugging through research to try and proc mega engineering which is the rare research that you need in order to build mega structures right and so my all of my focus at that point in time was towards building research labs getting as many researchers employed as possible to lower the, the amount of time that it takes for me to I, I mean i guess we need to explain this a little bit one of the ways that solaris is interesting is that uh, it doesn't have a traditional tech tree you have three different types of research, physics, society, and engineering. And when you complete a tech, you get a choice of one of three or four or five, depending on, like, you know, bonuses and stuff like that, different techs, right? But it's always random, and you can't, like, make sure that you're going to get the thing that you want. And so if you want to research something specific, and I knew that I specifically wanted mega engineering, right, you have to churn through a bunch of texts in order to just keep procking over and over and over again. But once I got mega engineering, all of a sudden my focus on research completely disappeared because I didn't really care all that much. Like now I had it right. I had it. And my focus now shifts to saving money and creating an economy that will allow me to support building a mega structure um, or, you know, building alloy foundries so that I can have two mega structures up at the same time, that kind of a thing. Yeah, no, no, that 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 makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that's kind of like the strength of maybe not forex games as a genre, but especially like the paradox games. And I think there are a couple of others that like fall into this kind of like um, genre of kind of like uh, they're almost like halfway between like a like a like a world simulator type game, like almost halfway between like a Minecraft and like a traditional forex game, if that makes sense, right? Like where a lot of it's about the journey and kind of the stories you tell and, and like the stuff along the way. Um, actually, I think that it's kind of interesting, right? Like um, I think there is a lot of kind of like the same kind of like uh, sublimation thing that you get out of say animal crossing or Minecraft or Factorio um, in terms of like the joy you get out of the game. It's not necessarily about like achieving the goal. It's about like, running the empire whether that's you know a medieval empire or a space empire yeah and i also think it speaks to a player's ability to create their own goals right uh this is something i've talked about in world of warcraft before where my goals are weird niche things that i go really hard for but like not other play like some players would go i want to defeat mythic nazoth right or i want to be gladiator which is like the highest pvp rank um for the season or whatever. And those are very like conventional goals. But then there are also goals like I want to earn 5 million gold so I can buy a Brutosaur. Do you know what I mean? Right, or right, yeah. I want to do enough island expeditions that I get all of the mounts from island expeditions. Or I want to get all the achievements associated with Nazjatar because there's a special crab mount in it for me or something kind of along those lines. And I think like game designers in a lot of ways will create stuff like this for players to engage with, but like players will find their own, you know, like they will find their own goals and make their own sorts of decisions about how they want to want to proceed. And like, I think it is good that for instance, total war Warhammer two has a, uh, has a, has a, like has a victory conditions system, right? That it has a, uh, dedicated, 
set of rules that say if you're Skaven, you need to do this stuff to win the game. If you're the Empire, you need to do that stuff to win the game. It's flavorful a lot of the time, right? Like for the Empire, you need to own all of the Imperial provinces and uh, Sylvania, which are like former Imperial provinces. They got taken over by like the Vampire Counts or whatever. And you also need to have a certain amount of just like prestige, which is like a special Empire resource or whatever. Whereas for Skaven, you need to kill all the dwarves, kill all the orcs, and hold, you know, like, Skaven Blight and hold, uh, like, Hell Pit and, you know, like, the specific Skaven settlements that are specific and whatever. You have to have a certain amount of Skaven corruption in Altdorf, which is, like, the Empire capital. That kind of a thing. Um, I think that stuff is, like, useful because it gives people sort of, like, long-range things that they are, broadly speaking, working yeah. to in sort of chip ways, right? Like, I'm sort of chipping away at the Empire. I'm going to take a couple of provinces now, but I know that I'm on my way to, you know, getting all of that Skaven, whatever, in Altdorf. Um, but most of the time, when you're playing a game of Total War Warhammer 2, you are more focused on, there's a big-ass army of dwarves, and I need to defeat it before it breaks my outer defenses and starts wrecking, kind of, like, the economic core of my empire. Or... You know, I am at war with the vampire counts, the lizardmen, and uh, the dwarves of the spine of Sotek, and I need to focus on one of them to kind of break their back before I get overwhelmed by all three. Uh, and that's just, I feel like, how players play a lot of different games, but it really comes out specifically in 4X games. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I, I agree with that. And I think, I think, like, uh, similarly, right, like these, like these little, like sub goals that are, like aren't necessarily like things that are, like, you know, like you, like you said, like there's a dwarf, like there's a dwarf army that you have to deal with. There's something imposed upon you, but there's also like things you can create on your own own goal, right? Like, you know, um, I need to capture this system so I have enough, you know, rare resource to produce this thing I want to produce. I need to get my my city arranged in order. That way, I've got, you know enough alloy production that I can really ramp up my defense in case I need to go to war or whatever. Right. And those are all goals you set for yourself. Um, and I think in that way is, is how you get this kind of like comparison to say like factory or Minecraft where those goals are entirely self-set, right? Like, you know, it, um, and there's no like, and you know, like I need to set up a redstone f switch farm so that I can like farm whatever to do, whatever. Um, I don't play a lot of Minecraft anymore. Uh, but, um, <laughs> you need um, to farm bees now. That's what the Minecraft kids are it, doing. Bees. It, is it? Is it really? Uh, I uh, think they added bees to the game. I don't know if you farm them. <laughs> Man, Did they I add bees to. Let's let's look. Did they add bees to Minecraft? You know, I remember when Minecraft first came out. Like when we we were like in college. Um, I think, and I remember I, I still have like a that version of the game somewhere because I bought it for fifteen bucks. Uh -huh. And uh, I remember, like, at one point they were like, and eventually we're going to make it so that things that aren't supported fall. And, like, I guess I don't think they ever did that because no one actually wants that, right? Like, everybody wants their, like, weird, uh, you know, their, their their weird, like, abstract Minecraft art. Yeah, yeah. So, to be clear, not only did they add bees, it seems they had an entire bee-focused update, which says the buzzy bees out now... 
and the buzzy bees changelog is added bees, added bee nests and beehives, added honey blocks, added the honey bottle, added honeycomb, honeycomb blocks. Like, you know, they went hard for bees, apparently. So I was on the money. All right. So, you yeah. know, bees. Could you put- yeah, I will say that I think that there is a core difference between Minecraft and Factorio, even though I, I very much agree with the similarity in that Minecraft is like internally expressive. Something that I get focused on in Minecraft a lot of the time is uh, is like I want to build a mountain fortress that is like cool and unique and, and engaging. And I have right. a certain like set of aesthetic principles that I'm adhering to and like designed you know, concepts for what this enchanting tower is going to look like or what my, you know, big vault of items is going to look like, that kind of a thing. Uh, Whereas something like Factorio, I am driven entirely by effectiveness and efficiency. The only thing I'm interested in at any individual moment when uh, when I'm playing Factorio is building the rocket that gets me out of space. Like, it gets me out of that. I, like, I never do stuff in Factorio because, like, oh, wouldn't it be so nice if there was a little train that ran along the lake? No. That train's got to go somewhere useful. It's got to bring oil to my factories to build plastics for advanced circuits to go in my rocket or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I get it. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely get that. Um <laughs> Yeah, maybe Factorio is not the the single best example, just because it I is. I like the it it, it's a certain like Captain Crunch theater kid distinction, and I like that I've just described two two different versions of Buddy. Right? There's like you know hardcore industrialist Buddy, and also like you know expressionist architect Buddy. Well, so so I, I think that that is kind of in the DNA of those games, though, right? Like Factorio yeah. doesn't have like a lot of aesthetic control. And, the, like, you know, you, you are effectively building, you know, the biggest factories you can to get the ship to space. Whereas uh, Minecraft doesn't really have that ultimate objective. And it's not like it's not like you'd even, like, have a need to. You can make automatic stuff. But that's kind of like a wonder in itself. And it's, like, to get resources, you could presumably, like, make aesthetic projects, right? Like, um, uh, I think, like... The, uh, the I think one of the a game that like maybe splits that difference a little bit better is like Kerbal Space Program because like maybe not so much aesthetics but it's like you're building very functional things but you don't like have like a, a real set goal so it's like oh, I'm building yeah, this spaceship to get to the moon to get to the yeah, moon and, like yeah. maybe I'm building a rover to, to do it or like maybe I'm building like the silliest looking rocket I can or maybe I'm building a thing. That like even though it's it's you, we call it a rocket, it actually flies in the atmosphere. And it's basically a plane, and then they added planes in an update because that was popular. You know, like that kind of thing, right? Like uh, yeah, it's it's a sort of like Melvin sort of uh, like the aesthetic pleasure is in the exploration of them. It's kind of like how I prefer Quest Warrior, which is like a tier ninety deck, right? It's like not even on anybody's tier lists. Um, because like the mechanics of that quest I find to be really engaging and I like exploring those sorts of like little pockets of the game rather than just playing right like aggro enrage warrior which is the most popular warrior deck out there or, or something kind of along those sorts of oh things. yeah no I, I totally get that's actually why I fell off MTG like uh, back in uh, uh, Eldring because like 
my most effective deck by far was was my food deck. I just got tired of playing it, and I didn't have any ideas for new decks, so I'm like, ah, this is boring, and I stopped playing it. No, I'm now in this position in Hearthstone. Okay, so one of the things, like, obviously I'm a good Hearthstone player or whatever, and uh, one of the changes that they made is they made to, like, bronze, silver, like, gold, plat kind of a thing. And at the beginning of every season, everybody resets down to bronze 10, but, like, depending on where your MMR is, right, you get whatever you win you don't just get one star you get like nine so when i was first winning games in bronze i was getting like nine stars and then in silver i was getting like five stars and now i'm in gold i'm getting like three stars or whatever um and so even when i find wins on like my quest warrior or whatever even though quest warrior is like a really bad deck that loses to meta decks because of, like, the dedication to playing it all the time, I'm being, like, shuttled all the way up through the fucking ranks because of, like, the MMR. Uh, and I can't do the thing where, like, I just wallow around at rank 20. In the before times, it would have just been rank 20, where, like, everybody's playing, like, dumb bad decks, right? Uh, so now I'm, like, walking into Control Priest and, like, Aggro Demon Hunter and getting, like, my face kicked in. But one out of every five games, you better fucking believe that Quest Warrior's gonna go off and I'm gonna get nine stars out of it so even if i like lose four in the meantime i'm still making like huge leaps and gains or whatever yeah uh it's it's a thing it makes me honestly just like want to be like what if i just didn't play and tried to like force my mmr to reset or something like that uh so that i could like go 50 50 on my quest warrior games but then I have a quest to, like, do Demon Hunter, and it's like, okay, well, let's just, like, make the fucking best Demon Hunter deck so I can just blitz through it as quickly as possible. It's bad. Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah? Well, yeah. we should probably talk some more about Stellaris before Okay, yeah, let's wrap out. up our thoughts on Stellaris. I lo- like, I love Stellaris. Stellaris has probably dethroned uh, Europa Universalis, which was, for a long time, my, like, big favorite of these Paradox games. Um... One of the things that so, so okay, one of the things that drove me off of Europa Universalis is they just like they were releasing more and more expansion packs that I found completely unengaging. So they would do stuff like um, you know, oh, here's a whole like they did a, an expansion pack called like Dharma, and Dharma was all about playing the Indian subcontinent and like all of its like special mechanics or whatever. Um, and so they sort of did this thing where they just kind of like widened the breadth of the game in a way that I found to be kind of like hard to grok. Whereas now, whereas with Stellaris, it feels like, you know, even after three or four years of development or whatever it is, um, and all of the expansion packs we've gotten out of it, I like implicitly understand what makes Lithoids different than hive minds different than, you know, uh, like conventional species. And it's a lot easier for me to engage with the new content that comes out, uh, for it. Uh, my playtime in Stellaris is 183 hours, which, you know, obviously is a lot, but Stella, or my, or my, that was my playtime in Europa Universalis, but my playtime in Stellaris has now overtaken it to be 226 hours. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. You know what's no, weird? Is that my third played one, now that I'm like looking at this, my third most played game is still Civilization V. Wow. 222 hours. Jesus. How do you uh, how do you tell that? Uh, if you go to your Steam library, you can sort by hours played. Oh, uh, really? Huh. Yeah, my top my top ten games are Warhammer, Solaris, Civ Five, Payday Two, Europa Universalis, Warhammer One, XCOM Two, Fallout Four, Big Rip Me, 
uh, Total War Rome to Factorio. How do you how do you sort by uh, by hours played? I only see recent activity. Uh, when you go down by like all games, and then on the right it'll say sort by, and then you can sort by. Oh, I see. I'm looking at the the list on the right hand side, huh? Hours played. Uh, my highest is uh, my highest is Destiny Two. <laughs> but uh, my sec- that's actually kind of nuts though, because it's only been out for on the Steam for like a little while. <laughs> Guess how many hours I have in it. 200 390 jesus christ <laughs> yeah see when the I... interesting thing that i find when i'm looking at my hours played is that um so total war hammer 2 like i said is 685 hours which is three times more than my number two which is Stellaris at 226 um but then everything else is kind of hovering around like the high 100s right 222 hours 199 183 180 172 kind of a thing uh damn that is an insane amount of time <laughs> Yeah, so it's it was it was the MMO I was into for like you know since it came out right like I've yeah. fallen off of it recently but you know it's like my wow in that sense. Next, yeah, second, I mean the the nice thing about World of Warcraft is that I, it's not on this list and I can't show you yeah, yeah. the ridiculous amount of time I've spent playing you yeah. know, Baron or whoever. Yeah, my second is Crusader Kings at one nineteen. Oh, then enter yeah. the then enter the Gungeon at one oh five. That doesn't surprise me. I feel like you were playing yeah. a lot of Enter. Oh, I was. I still never beat it. Um, and uh, and then fourth is actually Stellaris at uh, at fifty nine. Wow, well done. Um, I there... thought you said sixty nine for a second. Yeah, that would have been nice. That would have been um, nice. Is there? Is this like only showing me? Uh, ah, it is showing me only installed games. Uh, oh really? Oh yeah. I Interesting. I... Ah, there we go. All right, my most played game is PUBG at four fourteen. Oh, okay, okay, that makes sense, yeah. I see. Yeah, mine also includes uninstalled games. Like, I don't have Civ 3 uninstalled, yeah. or Civ 5 un- or yeah. installed. Civ 5 is my third game at this point with 172. Honestly, and I was thinking about recommending for the next game we go back to Civ 6 and do a Civ 6 multiplayer game. That's not a bad – that's actually in my second row at uh, – for uh, f- at Yeah, Civ hours. 6 is my 11th – after, like, my, my top 10, it's Civ 6 at 119 hours. And I, I honestly, I feel a little bad 14. for Civ Six. I feel like Civ Six gets like a bad rap from me. <laughs> like I, I constantly complain about it. Yeah, no, it's it's weird because like I'm looking at this like you know I get I guess we're kind of like slowly rolling into our weeks I guess with this, but like I'm looking at these games that like you know games that, like you know I never really considered myself as having played Eve, but like apparently it's like got like 42 hours in it, right? Like apparently I've got like 30 hours in Path of Exile, even though I don't really care about that game. Um. Wow. Yeah, I've got 32 hours in Super House of Dead Ninjas, which was like just like this dumb like arcade game. It's fun, but like I was just playing it because it was like an easy game to play while like listening to a podcast. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, whereas games that I really love, right? Like you know, I bet you my 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 uh, my time played on Bastion is is like not super five high. hours. You're right. Yeah, like something super small like that. Yeah, Bastion is uh, 14 hours, so, you know, not super tiny, but, like, that's, like, one playthrough with, like, some completionist stuff done on it. Um, uh, Yeah, wow. Um, uh, But, uh, 
Uh, did we, did we, should, we should do closing stuff. Do we have any closing thoughts on Star Wars before we fully move into our weeks? You know, I guess that's my closing thought. Like, uh, I, I think it's a great game. I think it's really interesting and a lot of fun to maximize efficiency in that way. And it kind of holds a unique spot in kind of my, like, tiers of games. Yeah. Uh, I think at this point, I just kind of am a strategy gamer. I never really think of myself in those sorts of terms, like, in the way that somebody might say, oh, I'm a shooter or, like, an RPG. I always thought I was an RPG person, but just, like, looking at these hours, right, like, of my top five games, four of them are 4X Conquest games, right? Uh, and it's like, at a certain point, you just got to look at yourself in the mirror and admit admit what you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, abs- I absolutely get that. Uh, yeah. Um yeah uh but so i i think i think part of it that's uh that's interesting too is like it's it's also again that you can kind of like play and not be like hyper focused on right like you can play and like talk to your friends oh yeah about and it. i lo- i love like when i was rewatching breaking bad i was playing a lot of stellaris on my second screen because because it's possible if i ever like on the shootout with you know hank and the and the cousins i can pause stellaris and just watch that shootout for five minutes and then come back to it um, and that's always been like an important feature of those sorts of games. I can't do that in payday. Um, as much as I, you know, as much as I love payday. Yeah. 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 No, I, 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 uh, yeah. Um, and like, uh, and like, if you wanted to like talk to your friends about something, right? Like if you wanted to discuss, say the current goings on or whatever, right? Like, you know, and you didn't have a ton of, uh, and, and you know, and you just really kind of wanted to relax and spend a Saturday afternoon, in you know in in the covid and just chill with your friends i think it's a good game for that any of these paradox games are um uh i i think the uh like the maybe the turn-based ones are a little bit harder but these are especially if you're playing super cooperatively i think it's i think it's uh it's a good time um but yeah uh i guess with that how was uh how was your week uh how was my week i played uh, the thing I want to talk about is Killing Floor 2. Have you ever played Killing Floor 2? You don't have it, right? No. Uh, Killing Floor 2 is another one of these like horde uh, wave shooters, um, Something which is something that I've always been a big fan of, um, mostly because the th- like I'm a little less interested in precision shooting as I am in sort of like economy shooting, maybe I would call it. I don't really know how to like... In PUBG... A lot of the a lot of the skill is down to can you be incredibly precise with your shots, right? Like, can you get a sniper rifle and hit somebody from like three hundred yards away, right? Um, can you beat someone in a one v one PvP firefight in the gulag? That kind of a thing. Uh, whereas, what I'm interested a lot in these sorts of wave based shooters is like, okay. The, for the gun I have, how much damage can I output as efficiently as possible to sort of tame the incoming wave of bad guys before I need to, like, reload or whatever? Um, and Killing Floor 2 happens to be, like, amazing at that and also just, like, intensely satisfying. One of the things that I played a lot, uh, which was a wave shooter, was uh, Mass Effect 3's multiplayer. And one of the things I always loved about that game is that the headshots were so satisfying. They just had this, like you know, a super overstuffed pimple popping feel to them and killing floor two, which I had the, like the privilege of playing on stream with devs from tripwire who like the, the game, uh, who are the company behind the game is very much that sort of thing. It's a zombie mode shooter that they're not technically zombies. They're like whatever, you know, 
science specimens or whatever. Um, but getting like headshots and stuff like that in that game just feels so good. It's just so satisfying. Uh, and so I've been playing a lot of it over the past two weeks. Like I, I, I knew I was coming up on the stream. So I was like, well, I got to play a little bit of killing floor. Um, and I just keep playing it. I've been playing it over the weekend. I've been playing it the last couple of days. Uh, and yeah, that's it. I've been playing killing floor too. What have you been up to? Uh, well, uh, so the, the big thing is I finished, uh, better call Saul season one, but mm. I think we'll get to that in a, in a, in a second. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, first, like the, the stuff I've been doing, I've been playing some Warzone. Warzone continues to be fun. We should play at some point. Maybe I do a cast should. On. I've been thinking about downloading it. Um, I just should, like, you, it's one of those things where I just like look at that and I'm just like, well, I want to do other stuff. I'll download it later. And then I never do. You should download it. We should do an episode on it, just because, okay. like, we can because we did Apex, right? We did PUBG. Yeah, we yeah. can kind of like, you know, continue our, we can our bring battle. On the boys. Yeah, um, really talk about like what it what it does differently, what it does right, because I, I think it does some like really compelling things that are different. But um, I've gone over them a little bit, and I'll, I'll wait until detail until uh, we do that together. But uh, um, I actually briefly dipped my uh, toes into uh, Left 4 Dead Two uh, again with. Uh, another yeah. friend, yeah, another like, horde, another horde shooter. Yeah, um, first time I played it since like 2013. Um, just because the person I was playing with had a had a very not so great computer, um, which is actually selling point for another selling point for these paradox games. You don't need a great computer to play them. Um, uh, but uh, um, you know that was it was interesting just because like there's some things that like are so different, right? Like I am so used to like you know the st- the kind of standard for shooters, which is you know. Um, you're mostly aiming down sight while you're firing. There's like that. That's like like right click in in Left 4 Dead is you you you, you melee to like knock zombies off you and kept throwing me off because I kept doing that to aim down sight and shoot. It's like so so born in. Um, also, just kind of like uh, the little things in that game that are like very clever, right? Like uh, you know, like oh, you can heal other people. Like your health is like super important resource to manage. You can't really go out on your own, or one of the specialist zombies will get you and you will die. Um, uh, you know the voice line, like the you know it's a little bit janky, but like it's it the gameplay I think holds up really well, even if though the shooting's not super great. Um, this kind of like the the kind of sheer spectacle, even even so much later with the advanced with like you know the the older graphics, I think it's it's still a, a fun game to play. To be honest, I really never play. I, like I have it, like it's in my Steam library, but I have literally never touched uh, Left for Dead Two. Like I have zero hours played at it. Um, so that's interesting. I almost kind of because like in in a lot of ways it's kind of like the the er like wave shooter, right? I'm trying to think of like wave shooters that were coming out before this, and I'm sure there are some. Um, um, Gears but, of War uh, Horde mode, I think, might be the like, oh the that was the, I played a ton. Oh my god, I played a ton of uh, Gears of War Horde mode. But yeah, now I, I'm very interested to kind of like see right like w- like where the the genre came from. I guess. Yeah. Um, it's it, I, I, so it's interesting because I wonder how much of that like DNA like also like rolls back into like the Call of Duty like you know uh, in rather the the BR stuff right because like you know the the thing that is that, that started the BR was like the uh, the zombie survival mod for Arma right um, that eventually got turned into the the BR stuff so um, that wasn't really a wave shooter though that was just kind of like. Uh, that was just that. That was just like a zombie scene thing. But I, I, I want to say that there's like some weird piece of shared DNA there. But maybe I'm full of shit. Um, uh, but 
other than that, I also uh, I also I I didn't beat, but I finally got to the champ the the arena champion uh, in Gone Viral. Ooh, nice. Um, you know, I I still really like that game, but like that that like I I just didn't get enough kind of mutations that gave me power, and like the health on the on the champ was just too much for me to really deal with. Um, I really like the game, but I think that like like it's just, it's not a problem unique to Gone Viral, but like roguelikes have this problem where if you don't get like the right combination of things, um, then the run can be really not so, not so great. Um, I think it's a little bit worse, a tiny bit worse in gone viral because you are so reliant on your, um, mutations. And those are kind of like permanent aspects of your character. Whereas most, most games like, like the things you get are, are more temporary things on your character and you can still get screwed by not having them, but like not getting a good set of that, like not getting a good set of equipment, isn't as devastating because you're like theory, like you instead of like trying to to accumulate equipment to a point, you're trying to, um, you're you're just trying to like iterate through equipment until you get a good set. If that makes sense, um, and so if you get like a bad set of mutations and gone viral, it's it, it makes the run a little bit tougher. Funnily enough, the reason I got to the champ is because like the mutations I got just like made it harder for me to get hit. Right, like I got like the hover one, and I got like uh, explosion proof, which is like you know just makes everything like, you know, gets rid of half of the the problems in the game, um, and so like I got a bunch of utility things that like let me survive for a while, but like I just couldn't I couldn't like last long enough against the champ, which is uh, interesting, um, but still a very good game, um, even though it's not out yet. Like I, I I am looking forward to that like getting a full release eventually. Yeah, so um, uh, I definitely feel that. Um... Because it is one of those things where sometimes I will get really offensive builds and I just die. You know, like you just run out of health and you die. Um, and then sometimes I'll get those sort of defenses, defensive builds and you get in those boss fights and it's just like there's not enough time in the world for me to get all the weight. Like to just like chunk this guy. I'm going to make enough mistakes over the course of the fight or whatever to just sort of uh, to just sort of lose. But yeah. Yeah. Um uh, what else? I played a little bit of Geometry Dash, which is like this super like super hard platformer and kind of the tradition of the super hard platformers. But like, it's different in that it's not. It's like you're constantly moving, and it's a little bit rhythm based, which is a lot. It's it's just a lot of. It's like a fun time waster. Um, it's also a mobile game, um, and it's like you know one button controls. You just jump, and then like occasional transform instead of jumping, you have to like fly your ship up in, you know, in those kind of like, you know, keep between the, the lines type of games. So, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting, but, um, that was most of my gaming this week. Uh, the, uh, the, the big thing I did this week was, uh, watch Better Call Saul, uh, the first season one and boy, howdy was, uh, was that a ride? Uh, I think it's a very good follow up to, uh, to Breaking Bad. Uh, so satisfying to hear. Yes, nobody's no. talking. This is the thing that kills me. Nobody talks about it. Like I, all of my friends have watched Breaking Bad, and we were like all talking about it constantly. And then Better Call Saul, nobody. No, it's crickets. I, I mean, it was crickets for me even. I mean, like I, I watched the first season when it came out, but I watched it like after it came out just to kind of see what it was like. And I was like blown away. And I was just like, how the fuck is this like under everyone else's radar? It's it's insane to me because ah, so. I liked it, but I also think that it taking the entire first season 
for Jimmy to really become Saul, and he's not even really Saul at the end of the first okay, season. Okay, yeah. Least I, 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 have you entered the second season at all? No, I haven't. But okay. I, but like, it's pretty clear like what the trajectory is, right? Like he's fusing like 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 you know uh, you know good boy lawyer Jimmy with like you know slipping Jimmy to become Saul, right? Like that, that, that's what I imagine it is, right? Like, um. So okay, so this is part of what I find really engaging about Better Call Saul. It's not that simple, I guess I would say. Okay. Like, obviously, I don't want to spoil anything for the later seasons, um, but you see this in season one too. Jimmy is not Walter White. He does not right. have a straight trajectory kind of downhill in the way that like Walt starts as a mild mannered Hal from Malcolm in the Middle and becomes Scarface, right? Uh, Jimmy is a really, he's kind of an addict in a way. Like he's a well-meaning guy and he has a core sense of like morality and justice and he wants to do good and he's loyal to his friends and he cares about people. Right. But he also has this incredible ability to do, to like accomplish things. Right. And that ability is unethical. And so it's like, how much is Jimmy willing to compromise his you know like how much is he willing to do the sneaky thing the con artist thing in order to accomplish his otherwise sort of noble goals and the answer is sometimes no like the the answer is sometimes yeah. he's gonna get the million dollars or whatever it is that the kettlemans have and he's not gonna walk away with that money right he's going to get them to turn it over to help his friend kim get out of the doghouse at hamlin hamlin mcgill right and like that's great. But then there are other times when he's just willing to roll around in the muck in a way. And that's the tension that makes Better Call Saul so good. Plus, I just love, um, to be honest, I think some of the characters are lo- a little bit more advanced in a way. Um, I think Chuck is incredibly uh, sort of complex, as you realize, over like the course of the season. Um, including the big reveal that I guess we maybe should spoiler warning or whatever. Yeah, spoiler warning um, for better. And I also love Kim. Uh, Kim is. It's funny to me watching people who I bet ten years ago wrote screeds on how much they hate Skyler be like, Kim Wexler is the fucking best. Yeah, well, I mean, they're different characters, right? Like, yeah. I, I, I sent this message to you, right? Like, does Vince Gilligan just hate wives? Because, like, <laughs> like, Betsy Kettleman is, like, the worst version of, like, Murray and Skyler, right? Like, like, like these, like, busybody Karen wives that, like, like you know, um, that, like, are just, like, overbearing and, like, obnoxious and, like, the worst, right? And, like, Marie and Skyler have their redeeming qualities and, like, you know, it's part of their complex character, but Betsy's just kind of, like, a bitch that runs over her husband and, like, you know, like, the impression I get is that she pushed him into stealing this money and she's the one that's, and, you know, it's very clearly she's the one that's, like, preventing him from, like, you know, doing the, the, the you know, the taking, taking the deal or whatever and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, one of the nice things about Better Call Saul is there's a lot of characters like the Kettleman's. Uh, fuck, what is his name? Price, the uh, oh the, oh the, the yeah yeah Midwest Arm- yeah yeah Ermin Trout's first uh, client yeah yeah, Ermin, yeah 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 Mike's first client who's just this like 
completely in over his head guy from like the Midwest or whatever. There's a lot of guy. There's a lot of people like that in the show, right? Who are just like these colorful characters that kind of like pop in to say hi, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, the Kettlemans are a good example of that, uh, and there are you know like others that that sort of yep. like show up in later seasons. Well, um, Marcos, right? Like. Um, it's kind of like this, right? J- like Jimmy, like the, like the the er- Wisconsinite that like kills himself pulling scams, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, uh, Marcus. My favorite thing about this is actually so Vince Gilligan and Dan Harmon really enjoy like really like each other, which is one of the reasons that Mike the character. I'm sorry, the actor, whoever the whatever that guy's name is, uh, was on Community for a season, um, and then went he left Community to go be a series regular on Better Call Saul. Um, but uh, they, they've always really like liked each other. And my favorite thing about Marcos is that he's the security guard that just puts up with Chang's bullshit in season three of Community. And he's basically playing like a very similar character to that. So they kind of like in this dramatic show about, you know, ethics and right, wrong and legal drama and whatever. You know, they also have this guy who's just like a comedic character actor show up and do his thing. Um yeah, no, yeah. Uh, I mean he, I mean he's he's a great character too, right? Because he like plays this like, you know, he's like he he is like the vision of what Jimmy would be if he if he never reformed, right? So like that's uh, it's uh, it's good. Um, yeah. So, but we, we should talk about the se- like so the central oh. avenue of the of the the season is the relationship between Chuck and Jimmy, right? Jimmy fights really hard for his brother, takes care of his brother, and Chuck stabs him in the back. Because yeah. he reveals that the only reason Jimmy didn't get hired at Hamlin Hamlin McGill is because Chuck has hard, unending contempt for Jimmy's law license. Yeah. Um, and no, that 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 really got me right because like I figured, I like you know it seemed kind of obvious to me at some point that like Chuck was going to figure into like why. Why, uh, you know, like, like Chuck was going to like do something bad, especially mm-hmm. towards the end when, like, but like, I never expected it to be because oh, see, that's interesting. I thought it was going to be the opposite. I thought Chuck was just like going to continue to deteriorate. I thought, to be honest, I sort of bought the con, right? Like, I thought the show was about Jimmy watching his brother, his great, like, you know, titanic figure of a brother who he loves and admires. This is like watching the first season. Who he loves in his mind and his mind. He was gonna like hold so tightly to Chuck and just like watch as Chuck kind of pathetically and tragically gets kind of run over by everybody. And that was gonna be his sort of trajectory into Saul, right? Like that the more he watches like powered shit on Chuck or or whatever else, um, the more he would uh sort of descend into you know, like that willingness to kind of be unscrupulous. Oh, but see, I, it went the exact opposite way. You know, like the core thing is Chuck's like betrayal and that contempt that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So, so this is the thing for me, right? Like, I thought it was going to be like Chuck. Like, turns out, like Chuck was like, you know, pulling his own sort of scam, or like, you know, the, the betrayal here was going to be like Chuck was just going to take it to himself because he wanted to cover himself in glory, right? Like, you know, he was just going to be shitty, and Jimmy was going to be like, oh well, I guess like having character doesn't matter, right? Like the fact that it was like that, like the fact that it was like just contempt, not that like you know. Chuck was like Chuck is shitty in a way that I didn't expect, and that really hurt me. Right? Oh like, no, was... I get that. Especially because like Chuck, one of the other things about Chuck that like really sucks is that he refuses 
to apologize. Do you know what I mean? Like, he is to the end of the season, to Jimmy's face. It's not like he says, you know, when I made this decision, you were slipping Jimmy, and I didn't trust you, and... I was happy that you were in the mailroom, but no way was I ever going to let you enter my law firm. But now I've watched you be a public defender. You know, you brought, you, you know, you brought the Sandpiper case. That's just like real good lawyering. And I trust you now. No, like Jimmy confronts him about it. And he says, slipping Jimmy with a law chimp license machi- is like a chimp with yeah, a machine gun, machine which gun. is like a famous line that constantly gets like quoted or whatever. Um, and it's because, like, he just refuses to accept that, like, that decision was, like, shitty, in a way. Oh, yeah, I God. mean, well, oh. it's, it's, it's like, it's like a, like a classic version of elitism, right? Like, you went to American Samoa Law School, so you can be a public defender, but you can't be a real lawyer, right? Like, like, uh, I mean, you know, I'm, like, I'm, like, I think this hit me particularly hard, because, like, you know, like, um, my brother and I are very different, and I can see a past version of myself that looks very much like Chuck, which, uh, like, I'm not proud of. But, like, oh that's, God. like... <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm not like that. Like, I'm not like that anymore. And, like, I, my brother was was never a con artist, so it's not like that. But, like, this is kind this of, like... like you, you used to, is this, like, when you used to, or continue to, uh, like, shit on my, like, arts degree? Is that, is uh, that what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I mean, with with you, it was always kind of like a joke, right? But like, well, no, I uh, used to take that really personally. Yeah, no, I mean, we've it, talked about this before. Yeah, <laughs> but like, um, especially like, especially when you're a teenager, right? Like, things you're not always thinking with your with your best head. My my brother's talents are in very different things than than academia, um, but I could see a version of myself that like, you know. Would continue to look down on my brother for for like not being traditionally you know like tr- traditionally the, this like uh, smart right because he's he's successful in his, in his own way he's been on this podcast before he he does a lot of uh, stuff on his own but like no I that... totally get that I, I I get that in the opposite direction though because like I I mean like I've been arrested right like I, you know I broke the law and do, and I, I've cheated you know, on hall passes or whatever in order to skip school. So, like, I really understand where Jimmy at at this point is, like, kind of, like, coming from. Um, and obviously, like, I guess I would consider myself, like, a reformed criminal. This was, like, all teenage dumb shit stuff. Um, and, uh, but, like, boy, do I really get that impulse to just be, like, fuck you, you self-righteous prick. Do you know what I mean? Like... Yeah. Oh, boy. yeah. No, oh. Ab- ab- absolutely right. Like, in, like, like you know, to 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 think that like somebody like, yeah, I don't know, brother brother stuff always really gets to me. Um, like just because you know, like I have that really, like I have a fairly close relationship with my brother, and like you know, um, that that that's always a thing that just like kind of sets me off, and just like oh, I can't like just it's it's just so it's so cruel. Um, it's ah. Oh. It is honestly so fucking cruel. Especially because, like, the other thing that really kills me about it is, like, how much time and energy they set up for Jimmy, like, working on behalf of Chuck. Like, he cares so much about Chuck. And 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 they they have Howard twist the knife, right? Like, you know, like, you did this for a year, right? Like, just like, oh! Like, oh, man. 
and Howard too, right? Like Howard, 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 who turns out to just be like, you know, the, the, the guy so fucking Chuck can save face, right? Like Howard, Howard turns out to be a pretty all, all right dude. Like I honestly, like, I really like Howard. I think Howard is a great yeah. character. Who, Does he show up more uh, later? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he the, the the main cast of uh, Chuck, Jimmy, Kim, Howard, Mike, Nacho. Uh, there's a couple of others that get like later added on in sort of like later seasons. Like, yeah, they they're all they continue on into the into the future. Um, so there's a lot that goes on with Howard Hamlin, who I also. Oh, I also just like I, I feel I feel for Howard because like in a certain sense he is also a victim of Chuck because like you can tell that when Jimmy talks about like Chuck building the practice and like the prestige of the practice not only like that hits Howard in a real way you know like he is trying to do the diligent thing and be a business owner and a partner in the law firm and make like good conscientious decisions or whatever but like he is kind of being like. Like, on one side, he's sort of painted as the villain because of the way he's sort of, quote-unquote, working against Chuck, in a way. Um, but on the other side, he is just as much, like, a victim of, like, Chuck's bullshit as Jimmy is because, like, the law firm hinges on Chuck's decision-making, which he uses, you know, which is, I don't know. Oh, God, it's so, ah, oh, so dramatic. Yeah, yeah, no, it's... uh yeah, it's, so let's uh, talk a little bit about Mike. Um, yeah, no, because we, we gotta talk about Mike, Mike. Mike is a little bit of like the odd man out um, when it comes to Better Call Saul, because like a lot of this is like the lawyer. It, it is very focused on the lawyer stuff, but uh, but there's like that key crossover on the Mike focused episode, which is very famous and won a bunch of awards called Five O, uh, where you like learn Mike's backstory in uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, yeah, and I, I mentioned this in our, in our in our private chat, but like. That's a scene that that like I don't think really can resonate enough if you haven't watched Breaking Bad, right? Because like M- Mike Urban Trout is unfucking flappable in Breaking Bad, right? Like like you know even at the end, right? Like when Walt shoots him, he's just like fucking Walt, right? Like as he dies, right? Like yeah. he, he um he cares. We know he cares about his granddaughter, um, but he doesn't get mad. And just to like see him like lose his mind in that episode is is uh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, oh, so it's good. it's so, one of the so I, it's it's so good. It's one of the things that I like most about uh, Better Call Saul because Mike as a character, um, I think in Breaking Bad he is good and he's like interesting, but he kind of it's a little bit of the Han Solo thing, right? Like he doesn't really have an arc. He's mostly there to serve as that foil that I mentioned last time. Um, as the kind of uh, Walt without the pride and without the ego. This is what Walt would look like if he actually, you know, did care about his family and was and was doing this for his family. Mike absolutely is doing this for his family, right? But, like, with 5-0 and the more you understand and, like, the more you kind of come to see of Mike and the decisions that he makes um, in Better Call Saul, he becomes his own character, like, with his own... Uh, sorts of like priorities right uh which i find really engaging you know yeah um, no i absolutely agree i you know there's the there's the the scene with the kettlemans the um the money r- radio car scene with the kettlemans which is one of my fa- 
I talked to, I talked a little bit about how Breaking Bad cares so much about like the details and Better Call Saul just double doubles down on it. It's that stuff that I mean, right? Like people who are in really weird pro it's kind of like Better Call Saul has like a bunch of train episodes, whereas Breaking Bad doesn't have as many because it's very focused on the kind of like back and forth fighting of, you know, Walt and whoever the villain that he's fighting against is. Um and so Better Call Saul has this space to do stuff like, you know, Saul and Mike work together to steal the notepad so that Mike can see how much they did. Or you get to see how Mike, you know, pulled off killing two cops in Philadelphia, right? Like that, what is his, what's his plan? How does he, how does he get away with it, right? What is the way that they steal the Kettleman's million dollar money to get Kim out of the, out of the doghouse? All of those sorts of very detail oriented questions, um, are just great. Yeah, and, and and it's one of the other things I like about it too is it's not just in the service of like crime stuff, right? It is also Jimmy goes to a dumpster, takes all of the shreddings out and works day and night at his brother's house putting the shredded files together to build his case against Sandpiper. Um that's the stuff that just like is ah uh, magic. Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the only thing I, I, I want to point out about uh, about Mike in particular, and it's not really Mike; it's that um, when he when he goes to that that first meeting with Price, um, the uh, the like the other two hit, hit like protection people that show up, like the uh-huh. crazy one is like I'm just like this guy is great. This this guy is great. I hope he makes a return. And I'm like, who is this? Who is this actor? I look at him. It's like voice of Trevor in Grand Theft Auto. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, like the I, pimento scene, the pimento sandwich scene is one of the best. Uh, my one of my favorite little details is that in El Camino, the the when Jesse is waiting outside the welding shop because the welding guys just got a bunch of money and they're blowing it on hookers and the hookers show up in a Humvee, which by the way, I think like maybe that's like Price's Humvee. Who knows? Um, the guy that is the bouncer of those hookers is the mountain man from that scene that runs away right. when Mike yeah, yeah. hits him in the throat or whatever. Oh, it's the, what a, what a, what a great little, just little something, you know, like little treat. You're going to have a little continuity reference as a treat. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm going to say that like, um, the, the thing I was exp- like, I was hope like in retrospect, I think it would have, like, I, I was like, I'm thinking about things I could have missed. I was like, there's got to be something in here, right? But what would have been really cool is if the uh, the talking toilet had made an appearance in El Camino. Oh, like yeah. If, See, oh, I forgot about the talking toilet in season one. Uh, that's a little bit of what I mean by, like, it's a little bit kookier and you get a lot of these, like, colorful Yeah, but that would have been a perfect thing so Perfect thing for, like, uh, uh, Badger and, and, and Pete to have. In, oh, like, my you know, God, yeah. <laughs> Put it in me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do you have any predictions? Because we're going to cover – so – for, for, for the listeners at home, we're going to cover each season of Better Call Saul over the next couple of weeks um, and then do a full episode on season five when it comes out, kind of summing up, you know, like everything. Um, well, the... to be clear, season season five is out. I'm oh, right, yeah, season five here. ends, but like, yeah, when Mango get, gets all the way up to, to season five. So here is your chance on the record. What what do you expect in season two? Get, what, what are some predictions? Uh, for season two? Uh, um, I feel like I feel like the like Saul has to get the office at some point during season two, right? Like, okay. I think he, 
I think he assumes the the he, he assumes the Saul mantle, right? Like he changes his name, right? Like he's fed up enough with his brother that he that he that he does the Saul Goodman thing. Uh-huh. Um, I think he at least starts the office. Maybe he like you know he doesn't have the Statue of Liberty on top of it yet. Like you know, like I could see that being like the office slowly evolves to be the thing uh-huh. we see in Breaking Bad. Um, uh, what else happens? Um. Uh, he probably has to deal with fallout from uh, screwing Nacho out of uh, out of robbing the Kelmans. I assume that that's the, that's going to be one of the drivers of the next season. Uh-huh. If not that season, it's probably something in the future. Um, what else? I honestly do you think any, okay. Here's a question: What Breaking Bad characters do you expect to pop up in season two? In season two. Um, Maybe Hank. Uh, who else? Who else could show off? Um, I assume you mean ones that we haven't already seen yet. Yeah, yeah. Who have we seen so far? Tuco, obviously. Uh, yeah. Oh, we've seen Tuco. I think Tuco is really the the, the yeah, big one. Yeah, Tuco might just be it. To be honest, Tuco and Mike. Um, yeah, yeah, Mike. Um, who else? Um, so I. I know Gus shows up at some point because huh. I saw I saw, I saw it in like yeah a, Gus's like face a, is on the Netflix is on the yeah. Netflix thing. <laughs> um, oh, who else could show up? Um, I figure I figure at some point during this run, Walt is going to show up just because like it's going to be a thing that everybody can be like, oh, it's Walt, right? Like, I, you know what? I bet you it's going to be like at some point Walt is going to show up and it's going to be like plain ass chemistry teacher Walt. And, like, he's going to say something that's going to be, like, you know, like, you know, drugs. I would never do that. Like, I'm a chemistry teacher, right? Or, like, you know, something that's, like, that's, like, aha. Yeah, sure. But you sure. don't know, right? Like, that, that just seems like a, a very tropey thing. Um, I bet Jesse shows up at some point. Um, like, I, I, I feel like every major character has to have, like, a cameo of some sort. Um that's like that's not a good answer. That's not like a, a good prediction. It's like somebody, you know. Um, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. I just don't know. I just, like I I have no idea what the hook of this of the next season is, right? Because they they don't really cliffhanger it, right? Like. Yeah. No, they don't. Ah, uh, oh, boy. Ah, oh, man, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. Um, <sighs> but yeah, my, that 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 will be my my big guess is that the uh, is that. Dealing with Nacho is going to figure heavily into the second season. Uh-huh. Uh I don't know. That's not much of a prediction, but I, I just I just don't know where it where it goes from here. So yeah, yeah. Uh, well, tune in next week to yeah. hear all about it. Um, the only other thing I did this week uh, was I finished Tiger King. Did you ever end up watching Tiger King? I did not. I watched like the first like five seconds of it, and I just I don't know. I had a very tough time with the, no. That's with that the cats. is fine. Uh, it is. I don't know. I, I might try and co- I might try and go back to it. Weirdly, I've been watching a lot of like American Dad recently, um, just because like it's easy and it's fucking just super funny. Um, yeah. So, so. I, I have I, I have heard the criticism. I think it's pretty accurate that like Tiger King in a way is is some level of poverty porn because like these people like these are like these people are like some of them are are like relatively affluent, but they're like trash affluent, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like part of it is like. Oh, that's not what rich people do with their money. They invest in portfolios and monocles. Yeah, yeah. 
that isn't that what rich people do, Mango? I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 I have disclosed my stock very high end graphics cards. Okay, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, I have had to disclose my like some of my investments on on, on this podcast. That's true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I do, uh, um, but yeah, no, it, you know, like it's it, the you, you know what's you know what's like really kind of like terrifying actually. Ever since I've seen Tiger King. I have seen a lot more tiger pictures popping up on dating apps, right? Really? Like, yeah, which is like, that was, how was that what you took away from that, that series, right? Like, <laughs> um, uh, but you know, that's, that's, that's besides the point. Um, uh, fun. They, they released an eighth episode, which is Joel McHale and interviewing like six or seven of the people, um, like oh yeah, people kind of got so mad about that on Twitter. They were like, "Joel McHale's such an asshole," and I was like, "Have you ever seen Joel McHale do an- anything?" Like, <laughs> yeah, that's it's his like, whole thing. He's a dick. So stick, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought it was I thought it was fun, right? Like he he wasn't particularly cruel to anyone, right? Like he was just kind of like being a dick, and he was a little bit snarky about like the fact that he's locked inside and has nothing better to do than uh, than interview these these people, but. uh yeah, um, I think it's fun, but you know, if you're off put by it, I, I get it. Yeah, so. I I'll probably come back to it in a bit and let me and yeah try, give give it another give it another go. I just saw for like the first, I just like saw something in the way that they were treating the tigers that just like really triggered me. I was like, oh, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, I bet you we could have we could have a robust debate about the tigers. Um, but you know, that is neither here nor there. We don't have enough time as we we enter the one. You know the. Uh, the hour we've long passed the hour and a half mark. So, if you would like to email us and tell us what you think about uh, about uh, Stellaris um, or Hearthstone or Better Call Saul or any of the other things we've talked about on this podcast, you reach us at podcast.nerdsplaygames.com or nerdsplaygames at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, on Twitch, on uh, SoundCloud, or review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, feel free to donate to us on our at our Patreon, but do not feel obligated. Um, I think that's everything I had, buddy. Do you have anything else you wanted to promote? I have one thing that I'm looking to promote that got announced today, which is why this podcast is a day late, because I was up till 3 a.m. working last night. Uh, Akupara Games is publishing Relic Hunters Zero Remix, uh, which we've talked about before. This was announced in December. We have a release date. It is two weeks from Thursday, two weeks-ish from now. May 7th is when you'll be able to pick up Relic Hunter Zero Remix on the Nintendo Switch. Uh, there's a pre-order bonus going on right now. It's 10 bucks uh, for the pre-order, 13 bucks after the pre-order ends. The pre-order ends May 11th. So if you want to pick that up for its pre-order price, I would recommend going to bit.ly slash rhz switch. That's bit.ly slash rhz switch. I'll make sure to put that in the description. Uh, All right. Well, in that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.